This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Inhaler by Tad. This sounds like grunge. He works really well when he's kind of barking along with a guitar riff. I understand why they were not necessarily successful. I guess I would think of him as being a little bit more heavy-handed. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me for episode 152, as always, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are slowly but surely reaching the end of our third season. I mentioned it's 152. Only uh, two more reviews after this, and then it's our season-ending wrap-up. So, of course, we're getting towards the end. we got to squeeze in some of our own picks here at the end. And uh, you have provided us with a pick, Jay. Why don't you tell us about that pick? Uh, I picked Tad Inhaler. I bet you're wondering, why did you pick this album? Excellent question, Jay. Right? Yes. I'm not quite sure why I have it, but I've had it for quite a while. Maybe it was used. They were always one of those bands that you would just always, um, you know, you'd be reading an article about one band that was getting a lot of hype, and then they would be sort of mentioned in the periphery. Either they're... Seattle connections or sure you know or, uh, or a band from there or some other you know a metal band might not reference them so they seem to always be there so I think I picked up the record used maybe a couple years after it came out probably and then uh, I've always just kind of had it in my collection and listened to it from time to time but never really spent um, a ton of time with it especially not within the last 10 years or so so we hadn't done anything heavy in a while, so I thought it'd be fun to uh, go back and listen to it and see what we thought of it now. Cool. Well, like you, um, I, I knew the name Tad from back in the day, and then uh, I don't really remember either getting an album or, or playing them at the radio station in college, but I saw them in the movie Hype, or the documentary that came out in, I believe it was like 1996 or 97. Actually, was at a screening of that at the CMJ Music Festival in New York. You know, they, they were featured quite a bit because of the whole grunge aesthetic having, like, the lumberjack Pacific Northwest flannel aspect to it. And uh, Tad Doyle has, uh, you know, he, he had a strong connection to that sort of, uh, that sort of a, a look. So, um, and then also they, they went into the whole aspect of him being not a svelte gentleman but being a bit of larger gentleman and how that impacted uh, their career uh at the time so this was like 96 97 so it's you know six seven years after the grunge movement uh sort of takes place and then explodes it's an interesting documentary Smooth. yes it's an interesting documentary and you should definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. it's called hype it's got a lot of interesting stuff from the time. It was very, uh, they were very aware of what was happening while it was happening. It was, you know, and that's pre-internet. So it was uh, fairly interesting in that respect. But I really didn't get, <laughs> what? Is that funny? Is that? I just, the term pre-internet, just, it's just funny to even think about that. Well, it's uh, funny I to just... think about how difficult it was to get information or... Right. <laughs> just the, all the things we take for granted now, it's just uh, mind-boggling. I'll just share this little tidbit and then we'll move on. I started a new job recently, and I work with uh, a diverse group of, of people, um, some who are younger than me. And uh, there was a hip-hop song that they were referencing, and I didn't know this hip-hop song. 
I uh, I commented that I, I wasn't familiar with the artist. He was a 90s hip-hop artist, but I didn't know them, even though I know quite a few. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with the hip and the hop and all that stuff. And uh, I said, you know, I, I'm, I have to be, you know, sort of forgiven for not remembering every, you know, all the hip-hop artists as I have been around longer than hip-hop. And their mind was kind of blown by that. <laughs> Uh, are any of them um, young enough that they don't remember life without the internet? So yes. maybe born. One of in them the early is 90s? so young, I could technically be their parent if I was a very active teenager. It, it, it's it's. So I've worked with a couple folks like that now too, and it's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like just because you'll you'll have a conversation that um, it's just a normal conversation, right? And it doesn't even occur to you. And then all of a sudden, you'll make some reference, and they just look at you with a blank stare, like, "What are you talking about?" You know, whether it be mm-hmm. a TV show or yes, uh, or or something like the internet. They're <laughs> just like, I, I don't even know what you mean, and it just comes to a really uncomfortable dead stop. And then yeah, you're, then it just hits you like a, a, a like a, a box of bricks that like, oh my god, I'm old. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the uh, underlying truth there. I am old. So yeah. let's move on to our 90s podcast, uh, 90s albums review podcast, and uh, let's get into this Tad Inhaler record. But first we're going to do what we always do, and that's the history of the band. History of the band. So Tad formed in Seattle, Washington, 1988 by Tad Doyle. Uh, he formed it with bassist Curtis, uh, Kurt Danielson, who is formerly of Bundle of Hiss. Steve, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, Weed, uh, of, who was in Skin Yard and then Death and Taxes. And then Gary Thorstenson, who was in The Tree Climbers. They uh, released their first album a year later on Sub Pop Records called God's Balls. And it was produced by Jack and Dino. Of course, Jack and Dino was involved in many uh, Seattle record that came out. The following year, they released an EP called the Salt Lick EP, and that was produced by Steve Albini. So that's not a bad one-two punch. You got Jack and Dino on your first record and Steve Albini on your first EP. The following year, 1991, they released their second album, Eight Way Santa. That was produced by Butch Vig. So now you got Butch Vig, Steve Albini, and Jack Mm -hmm. and Dino in your your, pocket there. So um, Steve Weed left the band as the drummer. He was replaced briefly by Ray Washam, who had been in Scratch Scratch Acid. And then he was permanently replaced by Josh Schneider, who was in the band The Accused. The band then left Sub Pop Records and signed with Warner Brothers subsidiary Giant Records. And they released in 1993 Inhaler. The producer of that record was Jay Massis from Dinosaur Jr. (laughs) Okay, this is kidding. You're making this up at this point. I am not making this up. Giant freaked out because Tad didn't sell as many records as they were hoping, which would be like Nirvana records. And they dropped the uh, band along with a lot of other bands. Um, and the band went to uh, recorded um, live alien broadcast, which was basically a live in studio recording of all of their quote unquote hits. It was released on futurist records. They then signed to East West slash Electra records and released infrared riding hood in 1995. Then that label went belly up. They basically had no label. Snyder left the band at that point, that point, and he was replaced by Mike Mongrain, 
but essentially the band was done. They finished up their touring and went their separate ways. Uh, they've gone on to form uh, various other bands, including Valis, and then um, one that some people might know of, Brothers of the Sonic Cloth, which Tad Doyle formed in 2008, and they've only released, I believe, a split 7-inch, but he's been threatening for five years to put out a record, and apparently that's going to be close to coming out. Uh, we'll get to more of that later. Uh, so that's the history of Tad. If you would like to suggest a, bell, a band and an album for us to review, visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We did get some Facebook feedback on this record. Some of the normal, some of the regular uh, commenters chimed in. Eric J. Peterson said, Good Call Inhaler is a solid metallic alternative album that should get a lot of a lot more love than it did tad was a band that really should have gotten more attention as they were cited by many bands as an influence during the grunge era i recall reading that paw was influenced largely by bullet lavolta and tad in developing their soul their sound tim james said it's a great record that should have been bigger i don't think you can find a heavier record from a so-called alternative band it might have been too heavy for the alternative crowd, which is why it didn't do better. Either that or the fact that Tad Doyle wasn't exactly a pinup model probably hurt them. As we aforementioned, yes, that was probably an issue. David Gorgos? How do you, ex- what? How do you ex- uh, explain um, John Popper, though? Well, he played harmonica. <laughs> so really, this is, comes if Tad would have played harmonica. This would if, he had, if Tad history. Doyle played harmonica, they would have been huge. No pun intended. Oh, what a mess. David Gorgos, one of the best grunge records. And then Scott Russell Algram, their best record, one of my all-time favorites. You probably know Tad Doyle's working on a Brothers of the Sonic Cloth record, right? I just mentioned that. I mean, he's been working on it for over five years, but based on his Twitter feed, he's getting close to the finished product. So, there we go. Facebook feedback on Inhaler by tad let's get into this album now jay since you were the one who suggested it that means i shall go first you shall so, you're gonna set me up you're gonna team me up here or am i just gonna dive into this uh, no just dive into it okay i'm not a setup man you're not a setup man gotcha would you, hey tim what'd you think of this record <laughs> that was awesome jay nice set up okay thanks uh so usually jay Here's the thing. Usually, I can count on your picks to either be albums that I really like or that I just kind of like. I don't think you've okay. picked a record that I've been like, I hate this record. Can you think of one? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I kind of like the, season. The, 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 the New York Loose record. I, I kind of like some of it, but it didn't that overall one, yeah. work for me. Um, but that was, you know, that's one of the examples of where uh, it... it didn't work for me overall. I found a few things that I liked, but wasn't in love with it. And then you'll bring, you know, like a Corrosion Conformity record, which I really like, or, um, mm. you know, stuff along those lines. So this record, this one clearly falls into, I really like this record. Kind of kicking myself for not listening to this because I heard so many bands that I liked, not just from doing this podcast, like, ones that we've discovered like Paw and and Grunt Truck. Um, But also bands that I liked back in the day, like Soundgarden and Helmet. I hear a lot of Helmet in this band, in the guitar playing and the rhythm section. Mm. I like his vocal pretty 
pretty much on the record. I, I as as compared to like Paige Hamilton on the on the meantime record, who I like the the variance mm. that he does between his actual singing and then his like guttural yelling. Uh, there were a few times where I felt like the vocal on here got really strained. Um, and it's too bad because when he's actually just singing, it sounds really good. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, the opening track, Grease Box, or uh, the second track, Throat Locust. Like, he does singing combined with the yelling, um, and it works well for me. There are some other spots where he just sort of it, he can't quite carry the what he's trying to do you know carrying the melody to the with the vocal and it's it's not a lot it just happens one or two times where okay i went eh, he's, he's stretching it he's, he, his vocal can't quite do that um but i really liked listening to this record in headphones because it's able to hear uh the bass is really tasty on this record mm-hmm. um reminded me a lot of like i said the helmet or even like a a Jawbox record um just it's really distinct and it's got a great tone and then you can hear the separation of the guitars a lot of cool stuff going on with the guitars playing off of each other using harmonics uh he's there's some effects thrown in very tastefully you know they use a wah here and there but it's not over the top or anything like that and uh they do some they do some things which also reminded me of say the melvins when they get a little heavy and slower which I liked, and then they get some screaming tree esque psychedelic sounding grunge, which also worked for me. There was very few parts or songs that didn't work for me. The one that kind of was a, was a curveball for me is track four, Luminol, only because mm. um, well, one is the longest song on the record, but it has a really weird bridge. Which I learned that it's so it breaks down into like an acoustic guitar piano part, and then it like it, it's a dynamic shift between that and then this heavy part. It's Jay Massis playing the piano on that song. I think I was thrown for a loop because I kept thinking when I was hearing the song that when the acoustic loud soft part started, I thought they were starting a new song, and then they went back to the mm-hmm. melody from the beginning of the song, and I was like, oh, this is not okay. So just I kind of got thrown. Overall, the record sounds good, except for I didn't think that the acoustic guitar sounded great. It just sort of kind of has this quality where it almost sounds like it's fading in and out. Um, and I, I don't know if it's just the mix or if, you know, if it was just the, the if it's just the final product of the way that the acoustic sounded. But it just didn't sound real strong to me, the, the acoustic, whereas everything else on the record, the guitars and the bass and the drums sound really really good mm-hmm. but there's there are quite a few songs on here i mentioned helmet earlier that i would have to look at when like helmet released their first record i'm guessing so this came out in 93 and i'm guessing if i went back to like you know eight way santa or uh, god's balls <laughs> just <laughs> such a that there there would probably be some similar sounds on those records, and I'm guessing that there was some influence on Helmet, because I just can't not imagine there was influence uh, based on listening to this. Yeah. Really enjoyed this record. Um, this is probably one of my favorites that you've brought to the table, and I'm kicking myself for not have listening 
not have been listening to this uh, earlier because it's it was definitely worthy of um, being listened to. So, and I, I, I kind of get where they didn't explode the same way, say, a Soundgarden or Pearl Jam or uh, Nirvana did because this is still hyper-aggressive and, and, you know, loud and messy at points. Whereas by 93, you know, Pearl Jam has put out verses. They're doing songs like Daughter and Elderly Woman Behind the Counter of a Restaurant in a Small Town, whatever the hell that is. You know, they, they're embracing sort of like the more melodic mid-tempo songs and Soundgarden is moving into the super unknown era uh Nirvana has is doing you know Nirvana was still you know on the fir- on, never mind a pretty poppy sound you know very you know distinct loud you know soft core soft verse loud chorus Pixies-esque stuff this band does not necessarily tread those same waters so which is fine yeah. but I understand why they were not necessarily successful uh, in the in the ninety three in the year nineteen ninety three in terms of this coming out. So, uh, in terms of you going back and listening to this, Jay, what was your uh, what was your take on it? I agree uh, with uh, with everything you said. Um, it's funny that you know both. Uh, I have more of a history with the record, but our outcomes here at this point are the same. I, I would be, um, I, I guess, a couple things stood out to me that. Um, both just listening to the history and then also from uh, listening to the record that, that I think are notable. Well, what a weird mix of um, of um, producer, band, studio. So it's produced by Jay Massis. It's recorded mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And the band's from Seattle. How did mm-hmm. those three things happen? Like, I have just no seems idea. like an odd, uh, you know what I mean? Just like a weird, yeah. why would a band from... Seattle recorded in San Francisco, and then why, if they did, or if a band from Seattle recorded with Jay Massis, how would they end up in San Francisco to do it? Just the whole, th- that little triangle of things just don't seem to quite make sense. But the other thing that's odd to me is that um, I wouldn't necessarily say it sounds uh, very Jay Massis-esque or Dinosaur Jr.-esque. No. Um, the sound of the record, which is surprising in that if he told me he produced a record, I would have some assumptions of what that would sound like. And this band is so different than him, I guess that it just doesn't, that doesn't come across, uh, which is fine. It's just, uh, I guess I would think of him as being a little bit more heavy handed in this production than, uh, than he is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sound of the, the, the record, um, it's great. Um, I think what stood out to me, just a little bit of a, a nerdy observation, something that you didn't mention um, that I thought was curious was the amount of double bass drums on this record. Oh, yeah. Um, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. not a very grunge thing to do. Um, it's a very metal thing to do. And it's, it's pretty neat because it it syncs up with those really chunky, you know, rhythmic-oriented um, riffs in an interesting way that it makes them a little bit more unique. Uh, it gives them a, a little bit of a... Just, a distinct sound within the uh, the overall grunge landscape. I like I like the band when they're I guess in their most prototypical grunge state. So you, where you've got like a a song like Greasebox, where you got you know a chunky down tune riff.
not overly aggressive, like a song like, um, say, Pansy, which is so sludgy and Mm -hmm. like stoner metal sounding. Yeah. Um, I I prefer the stuff that's just a just a notch uh, away from that, um, a little less, a little less hardcore metal sounding. Um, I like, um, you know, from time to time they mix in some things like a slide guitar. Um, I kind of liked Luminol and when they did something a little bit different in terms of the, you know, introducing those weird piano parts and the weird acoustic part, just, just in terms of listen to it. Now it, it broke the formula. There starts to be a formula to their, to their songs and, and, and where that song's placed in the record, it, it breaks that up um, in a way that's kind of nice. Um, I think my biggest criticism is uh, one would be the, what I already mentioned when they kind of get too far away from themselves. So either they get too heavy or um, say on Gouge, the last track, they try to get too almost bouncy or just too straightforward and almost pop. Gouge is the closest to me they get to sounding like Jay Massis. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That acoustic yeah. guitar. And it's just not them. No. And and then that song and Leafy Incline, I think, are the two examples for me that um, the vocal is 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 the weakness of it you know he's just mm-hmm. he's going to places where he just shouldn't go right it's kind of singer that he works really well when he's kind of barking along with a guitar riff um he can get through some semi-melodic parts and choruses but you know he can't he's got to know his limits and not go too far and um in a couple of those songs where he does uh, it just doesn't work um and it starts to make you it's the kind of thing once you hear it then you start paying attention more in other songs where you previously hadn't paid attention so it's the kind of thing where you know just a little bit of editing I think overall would, would help um, the record just from a material standpoint and also from a performance standpoint I also uh, I really I dug the um, the song like 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 and throat uh, yes. it's kind of really kind of a southern rock riff to it um kind of sounds like a heavy metal leonard skinner That's something that like there's a lot of bands that do that now. It's you know sound that that I really enjoy, and uh, I think even some of the Christian and Conformity stuff we we pointed out that they started to go in that direction themselves. Um, mm-hmm. This would be this would probably be one of the first times that happened, like one of the first bands that's tried that kind of sound. So I I, I really appreciated that. Um, and then um, what's the song that has the guitar part for the chorus with no vocal? I don't know. It's par- is it paragoric? Paragoric, yeah. It's got a pretty typical, pretty typical uh, 
you know, helmet ask riff in the in the verse. But when it gets to the chorus, there's no vocal, but there is this really cool, sort of unexpected guitar melody. And considering he doesn't, considering some of the choruses on this record are a little disappointing, um, they're fine, but they're not. I think if you think about like what separates them from say Nirvana, is you know, Kurt Cobain could write a chorus, you know, uh, right, and they Absolutely. could produce a chorus. They knew how to layer his vocal, and they knew how to dynamically present it, and. They, uh, you know, the bottom line, he knew how to write a hooky melody. Um, this band doesn't have, they're just not there. They just don't have that that extra uh, gear, if you will. A song like Paragoric, where it's a nice chorus, it's an interesting guitar part, it just doesn't even have a vocal. kind of like that approach with them, you know. it's I like the variety of it. This isn't a band I'm listening to for big hooks. You know, I want some melody that's nice, but um, some of the choruses, they force in some vocals and they're repetitive and they're almost not necessary. Um, and I would like to hear them almost go into more of like, a, um, and they probably, you know, influence some of the bands that do this now, but like a band like Baron Ass or something where, you know, you take the sound and you almost go in like a slightly more proggy direction and um, you just forego the whole pop format altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff on this. The uh, the bass tone you mentioned, you know, grease box starting off with that bass riff is is really cool. Uh, another uh, just bought the farm again starts off with a with a great bass riff and tone. Oh yeah. best grunge record i don't know maybe in terms of somebody somebody said that in the comments right yeah um who said that uh david gorgos one of the best grunge records i i i'm kind of there because to me this is when people call pearl jam grunge i kind of disagree i don't think that they're grunge i don't think that right like this is even when i think of grunge this this sounds like grunge like that that term you know it's dark it's dirty there's an there's this air of uh claustrophobia almost to it um it's got the metal influence it's got the punk influence it's got the there's no there's no aspect of it that is pop other than writing a verse and a chorus yeah so, yeah, so even this, a band like they sound like uh, soundgarden at times but i have a hard time considering soundgarden grunge because of all the things you just listed like they're too they're just a little bit too polished or i don't know maybe the vocal is just a little too classic rocky for me to be considered really grunge so a band like this is like a 
more primitive version of them. Right. This this to me falls more into the mud honey end of Seattle, like the mud honey and the you know grunt truck side of things. And you know, obviously mm. they there's you know they talk about like metal influences. I kind of feel like you know they're taking those metal influences and then sort of you know repurposing them with a much more straightforward approach. You know, Black Sabbath always gets mentioned as being a metal influence, but there are very few bands that actually sound like Black Sabbath that actually did what they did. Yeah. And uh, well, yeah, a lot of bands who just use drop drop tuning get you know that they get the it's said that they're influenced by Sabbath, even though that all they're really doing is using the same tuning. Right. Exactly. And I, I hear more of, you know, I hear more uh, Metallica than I hear Black Sabbath when I hear when I hear mm. some of the stuff that they're doing. Um, in terms, mm-hmm. of, and it's you know, obviously much more simpler version. Well, um, the, the the track Luminol that that riff is a straight, you know, that's like a just a metal riff. I mean, that's a not a Sabbath riff. That's a um, Metallica style, Judas Priest style. You know, yeah, it, it does sharp. have. You're expecting when that riff starts, you're expecting the guy to be like, Wah! like it's got yeah. this uh, Hall of the Mountain King <laughs> kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty metal. That's that's the closest they get to yeah. like a, a a real true metal sound. Whereas the rest of it kind of, like I said, like lurches into that like helmety. Uh, how many goodness that I like. Any other uh, final thoughts before we get to our rating? No. No, of course not. Let's do it. Let's do it. Final thoughts or final rating. Uh, worthy album, better EP, decent single. J. I am at a worthy album. Uh, other than, you know, like I mentioned, Luminol was not necessarily one of my favorite songs. And I, I get gouged to me. They sort of stray a little too far from their sound. Otherwise, I like the whole rest of this record. Um, this would be a great... Uh, if I were to box, I would box to this record. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm at I'm at I'm at a full record. Uh, I, I would pull off gouge and uh, maybe leafy incline. I don't know. It's okay. Um, I like the slide in it, but uh, I'm not a fan of the vocal on that song. Uh, maybe pansy. So I could I could get it down to about nine songs and and be uh, completely happy with it. There you go. That's two worthy albums. Uh, we're on a hot streak here at the end of the year. Let's hope we can keep it going. Lots of good records that we've been checking out recently. Uh, some thanks to our listeners and some we've been plucking out that we've been wanting to do for a while. So uh, this is a good, good positive way to end the year. Hopefully the last two will be uh, on par with this as well. I picked those last two, Jay. So we'll see what happens with those before we get to our uh, year-end uh, episode. I want to remind everybody that if you would like to re, uh, submit an album, of course, you can always go to digmeoutpodcast.com and hit our request review page to suggest an album for us to review. Also, want to remember, uh, or everybody should remember, in the month of December, if you leave us positive feedback on our iTunes page, we're going to pick one of the December feedbacks, I guess you'd say. Somebody who left, left us a uh, feedback in december we're going to pick somebody and they're going to start the 2014 season uh with a, a review they're going to we're going to pick one and you're going to say i want to review this record and we're going to say cool let's do it so that's it 
for Jay. I am Tim. We are uh, another one in the books. Tad's inhaler down, out out of the uh, off the list. We can move on to uh, God's balls next. Oh no, we can't. That came out in '89, so it's a little bit short. But we won't get around to God's balls uh, on this podcast. But maybe in the uh, Dig Me Out '80s. I just like saying God's balls. <laughs> I obviously, <laughs> obviously. Uh, that's it. It's a wrap. We will uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. <laughs>